As we continue our series on leadership, Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, uses the old game of hide-and-seek to point us toward one of the most basic attributes of God, His omnipresence. How many of you have ever played the game of hide-and-seek? A whole lot of kids were at our house. It was started out kind of foggy and misty. It was the perfect night to play hide-and-seek because you could go out in the darkness and the clouds would come upon you and uh, you could be just two feet away from somebody and they wouldn't know you were there. Isn't that the essence of what makes hide-and-seek fun? In other words, being able to lie in the grass in the darkness and somebody is just a few inches away from you and they can't see you. Isn't that thrilling? You ever analyze why that's so thrilling? But it is. In fact, in high school, in fact, we played hide-and-seek as kids, but I went to a Christian boarding school down in high school, and we developed the game of hide-and-seek into, an, into a gigantic intrigue game of cat and mouse. In fact, we gave it a new name. We called it Run My Sheepy Run, and the game went basically like this. We had about 250 kids in our boarding school, and we had about 300 acres of Florida, you know, tropical jungle. We had orange groves. We had... Uh, big, beautiful trees with moss, Spanish moss hanging all over them. We had azalea bushes that were well manicured. And what we would do is we would divide the entire school in half, fellows and girls. One group would be the wolves and the other group would be the sheep. And the sheep would go out first and they had to stay together in their team, 125 strong. And they would go out in these 300 acres and they would hide. And then as they would hide, they would send back, they would elect what we would call a caller. And the caller would come back and he had or she had to travel with the wolves. And as the wolves looked for the sheep, the caller would call out their position or, or work out some kind of a, of a coded message. Because the basic idea of the game was the captain or the general of the sheep was to maneuver his 125 kids is 125 sheep in a position where the caller could yell, run my sheepy run. And when he yelled that, all the sheep had to run for the home base, and the one that would win is the team that got the most people back on their team at one time. For example, the goal was to get all the sheep back before the wolves could make it back to home base. Well, you can imagine this. You go out on a dark Florida night, got 125 kids, and you cannot believe the thrill of being able to have 125 kids flat on their stomach, right on the other side of a hedge, and have 125 of the other team go right by them on a road and not see the entire team. It was kind of like the Civil War, like the Yankees and the Rebels, and all that intrigue of sneaking and all that kind of stuff. And, and then that exhilarating high when you'd yell, run my sheepy run, and the whole team would get up and run. And be honest with you, you know, just leveling with us, this has nothing to do with the message, but I think the reason the game was so much fun is that we went to a Christian school where fellows and girls were not even allowed to get within six feet of each other, and run my sheepy run opened up all kinds of incredible opportunities for doing something besides hide-and-seeking, okay? But the intrigue of hide-and-seek is the idea that you can go out and hide and no one will know where you are. I want to talk to you about today about the fact that hide-and-seek is a great game for kids to play, but have you ever thought of how stupid it is to play hide-and-seek with God? And yet almost every single one of us do it. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They ate the forbidden fruit. What's the first game they played? Hide and seek. They took off into the bushes. They thought they could hide from God. And God comes into the garden, and what's the very first question he asks? Adam, 
when he comes into the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? Now, did God say, Adam, where are you? Because he's scratching his head. You can see this, you know, grandfather God with a long white beard, a long white hair. He's scratching his head and says, now, where did those people go? You know, kind of like a bewildered person in a hide-and-seek game. You think that's what God is doing? No. That's what a lot of you think that God does. Have you ever thought of the ludicrousness of playing hide-and-seek with someone that you can never get away from? Like, what would Run My Sheepy Run be like if every place you went, the other team was right there with you? You could not get away from them because that's what the Bible teaches about God. The Bible teaches that that you can take a journey in a spaceship to the farthest reaches of the universe and God's already there. You can go into microspace, you can go take a journey down to the cell and go to the smallest recesses of the universe. And you know what? Right there at the, at the smallest point of whatever they can smash the atom up into, you know what you're going to find? God is there. I want your mind to just literally explode with the infinite idea that God is everywhere, every place, all the time. Because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we can never, never escape the presence of God. And I want you to learn three things about that today. First of all, I want you to learn that God is a spirit. You say, Dave, how in the world can God do that? How in the world can God be everywhere all the time? And the first thing that we need to think about is we need to think about an, an ultimate eternal being that's not limited by a physical body. In other words, he is a spirit, and he can be everywhere all the time. The second thing I want you to realize is that he's not only a spirit, but he is a personal spirit. And the third thing I want you to realize is that this spirit, this personal spirit, is someone that you can never, never escape. Let's deal, first of all, with the idea of that God is a spirit. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, the Lord is having a conversation with a woman that I would hardly ever expect to have an in-depth, religious, worshipful discussion with. And you need to be careful about this too because you're going to find in your own life that time and time again, you get into conversations with people about God that you would never expect would have anything to do with God. So don't sell people short. The Lord Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. that You, you remember the story well. There in Samaria, the Lord went up to Samaria, got tired by a well, sat down, asked the woman for a drink. He talked to her about receiving living water. Remember how the conversation developed? And eventually it came down to a focus right in her personality. And Jesus said, woman, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. She told the truth. The Lord Jesus looked at her and said, well, you've had five of them. I can just feel a thud in her heart. He says, how does this guy know everything about me? What has he been reading the Esquire magazines of the ancient world? How did he know that I was the, how did, how did he know that I was the, the, the scarlet woman of Samaria? I'm sure it's scary that, you know, you know what out of her. So what do you do? When somebody starts to, when somebody starts to work in your life, even when I'm talking to you from the word of God, and the spirit of God begins to really talk to your heart, you know what you do? You play hide and seek. And one of the ways that you do it, you do it internally. You try to divert things away from yourself. That's what the woman of Samaria did. She turned away from the focus on herself, and she tried to get get into a discussion about religion. 
You see, if you want to deflect a conversation, if you ever want to get things away from personal involvement with yourself, if you ever want to generate an argument, you all, all you need to do in a conversation is bring up one of two subjects. Number one, you can bring up, tell me, politics. That's exactly right. If you want to get in a fight, you bring up politics. What's the second thing you want to bring up if you want to get in a fight? Religion. In my dad's early upbringing, every time they got together with his extended family, they debated religion and politics. It always creates a fight. So that's what the woman of Samaria does in, in John chapter 4, verse 19. It says in verse 19, the woman says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews, I can almost hear the sneer in her, vo- the sneer in her voice because Samaritans didn't like Jews. You Jews claim to, to worship, to pl- you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Now, in the first century, that was a big, major debate. Kind of like the debate be- between the, the Islamic faith that you worship in Mecca and the Jerusalem faith that focuses on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. Although in Islam, they also have a holy place. It's a holy place for them as well. But there's a lot of debate over, is Jesus the prophet? Is Muhammad the prophet? Who's really the prophet? And there's great conflict between Islam and Christianity. It's a big religious argument. That's what was going on in the first century between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans built a temple at Mount Gerizim. To make matters worse, the Jews went and burned it down. So you can imagine how that made matters worse. And you have this tremendous conflict. And what the Samaritan woman wants to do is to get in a fight about spiritual things. Now, can you imagine being in a religious debate with somebody that responds to you like this? Jesus declared, no argument, he just declares. He doesn't raise a point. He doesn't debate. He just declares. He says, believe me. That's one of the things you're going to have to decide about the Lord Jesus. Will you believe him? And listen to the way he talks. He says, believe me, woman. And he's not being condescending. It would be like a southern man. He says, believe me, ma'am. He's being very gentle and kind, but he's being very strong. There's a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He shoots right by the whole debate. He says, you're debating about where you're going to worship. I've got news for you. There's going to come a time where it really won't make a lot of difference whether you worship in Jerusalem or whether you worship at Mount Gerizim or you worship at some other mountain. There will come a time when it doesn't make any difference whether you meet in Midlothian Bible Church or Oak Crest Baptist or First Baptist of Dallas or First You-Know-What of You-Know-What. He says, there's going to come a time when the place is not that important. Then he goes on and says this, though. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. So he told something very strong. He said that Samaritans had rejected the Old Testament revelation. See, the Samaritans only accepted Genesis through Deuteronomy. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament. And therefore, they missed a lot of God's revelation. And Jesus says the Jews were the ones that received the revelation from God. The Jews were the ones that connected with the living God. And Jesus does not ignore that point. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. All religions are not the same. Some religions are in ignorance. And Jesus Christ states very clearly that the Samaritan worship was in ignorance. It was wrong. Because on it says this, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Don't ever forget that. It's a very strong statement. The living God of the universe that we're talking about today, that we're trying to communicate some basic essentials about this ultimate eternal being that you need to build your life upon. He's saying that Jesus is saying that that eternal God revealed himself through the Jewish people. That's where our Old Testament scriptures come from. 
And Jesus, the Messiah, was Jewish. The original disciples were Jewish. Salvation was delivered to us through the Jewish people. And therefore, we should be eternally grateful to God. We should also be very, very careful about our attitudes. And there's no room in biblical Christianity for any kind of anti-Semiticism. Gazanian says this, Yet a time will come. The Lord Jesus is not exclusive. He says, Yet a time will come and is coming now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? To worship the Father in spirit. Every one of you, as I look at you, all I see is the physical. Like when I look at Mike, when I look at Andrea, when I look at at John, when I look at Kelly, when I look at different ones of you, I see a physical body. I see stuff. In fact, chemically, I see about $18.75 of material, something like that. I think it's probably gone up. But that's the way we communicate. If you talk to me, that's the way I connect with you. You talk, and and I look, and I see, and that's how I, I relate to you. But you know what I know about every one of you? I know that every single one of you are not just physical stuff. I know that every one of you are not just a body. You are also a spirit. You have an immaterial part that I can't see, and yet it's that immaterial part that I can't see that I get to know, that I relate to. That's why physical death tears us up so much, because that spiritual immaterial part is gone, and all that's left is stuff. And that hurts us very deeply because we call it the person is gone. And that's what we mean when we talk about a spiritual existence. We're talking about an existence that's not just physical stuff. Now stick with me. A lot of the modern world lives materialistically. They live as as if all of life is just stuff. A lot of people live as if you're just stuff. And I want you to get it really clear in your thinking because it's a fundamental truth. We are not just material. You are a person. Every one of you have conscious thoughts. And you live with talking, carrying on a continual conversation inside your mind. That's your spirit. It's your personality. It is your internal being. It's that immaterial part of you. And the Bible is saying that those that worship God connect with God in that internal part. With that person, that invisible, but that that reality that makes us who we are, a person. And that is the spiritual side of you. Now, the Bible teaches that when Christ isn't in our life, we're dead. It means that that spiritual side doesn't connect with God. What it means is as I open up this book to some of you today, some of you just sit there. If you don't have spiritual life, you don't connect with me. You just don't have a receiver. It just doesn't work. And I can illustrate it like this. For example, um, I was talking to Joshua's coach. And Coy was telling me, you know, he, was, he went up to Indiana and uh, he was visiting in a home and some of his relatives and a relative came from Virginia Beach and the, the, the relative started saying, hey, you know, I, I, just, I just got into a really new Bible teaching program and, and I've really enjoyed it. And what really struck me is that, is that there, there's a, it's a Midlothian place, you know, kind of where you live, Coy. And, and, and this girl, his, this relative said, Coy, have you ever heard of a guy with a really weird name named Dave Wurtson? And Coy said, yeah, I did. Sure I did. He's my pastor. Of course I know him. I hear him every Sunday. And Coy said to me when he came back, he said, I didn't even know you were on the radio. And here's my relative at Virginia Beach living every day. Now, I want you to get this. The sound of my voice is going out every day. The voice is there. 
It's there. And I don't even know it half the time. And a lot of you might not know it, but I want you to realize is if you turn on the receiver, it's there. Right now, as I'm speaking to this audience, there are all kinds of invisible voices in this room. In fact, we would totally disrupt the service if I gave every one of you a radio and every single one of you turned to a different station and you connected with all the voices in this room. But they're there. Even though you can't hear them now, they're there. And we have a tendency, you know what I do? If I can't hear a radio station, I say it's not on. And some of you have done it because I don't feel that I'm hearing God, because I don't feel that I'm close to God, because I'm not connecting with God at a given time. You know what you decide? God isn't there. God isn't there. Well, yes, he is. You see, he is a spirit. And, 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 and I want you to understand that, that the idea of radio waves, the idea of my voice... Like, my voice right now is filling this room. You can shut your eyes, and it doesn't make me disappear or make my voice disappear. In fact, I could play a recording. You could sit here, and you'd still hear my voice. And it would fill every space in this room. You couldn't get away from that. Now, that is a physical object lesson. That's really not the way God's omnipresence is. His spiritual presence everywhere all the time is. But it will give you a feel for it. Because we could analyze my illustration and say, well, there's sound waves and there's vibration, there's physical realities. The sound waves are hitting your ear and producing vibrations, sending neurological impulses to your brain, and then your brain develops chemical processes that make you think. But I want you to understand that the Bible is saying that there's much more than that. What the Bible is saying that there's a spiritual side to existence and that God is the ultimate spirit. And what the scripture says in this verse is, Jesus says, God is spirit. He's not a body that's located in just one particular place. He can be everywhere all the time. He's a spirit. God is spirit. And therefore, because he's a spirit, you've got to worship him in spirit and in truth. What it means is there's no hide and seek with him. That's why he said you must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, if you sit here today and you sit here and, and you're thinking a million different things and you're thinking, boy, you know, it's, it's really good I could come to church and it impresses so-and-so and so-and-so and I think I did a good thing, that's a crazy thing. You're acting as if God's somewhere else and he can't hear what's going on inside your mind. You see, what this idea that God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth does, it eliminates all internal lies. It, it, just, it can cause us to not play hide-and-seek inside. Because you not only cover your actions with other people, you tend to do it with yourself. You're an open book in the presence of God. Because God is spirit. The second thing I want to get across to you is God is not only a spirit, but God is a personal spirit. He's not the force. And I've often stressed this to you, but it's time to do it again. Because we're talking about those big essentials that you need to build your life on. I want you to realize that it's a totally different faith commitment to say, may God be with you, or to say, may the force be with you. You say, what's the difference? A big difference. It's a big difference. When you watch Little Women, it's a great film. And Winona Ryder is just a great actress. But in the middle of Little Women, when her sister dies and the wind rustles, and, and, and you have a transcendent feeling of, of the world soul that, that brings great comfort and peace, and her sister has floated into Emerson's transcendent reality. That's not biblical faith. It's not biblical faith. The world soul is an abstract philosophical ideal. Who knows what it is? That's not what the Bible teaches. When you say, may the force be with you, 
May it be with you. You just deified power. You just said that the ultimate reality that I'm committed to is power and energy. That's all there is. That's not all there is. The Bible says that God is, is, is spirit, but he's not just spirit. He is a personal spirit. When we open the page of the Bible, we don't read, in the beginning, energy and matter by probability factors exploded, and here we are. That's not where we begin in the Bible. And if you begin there, you're living on a totally different basis. The Bible begins with a person. In the beginning, what? God, that's his name. God created the heaven and the earth. What, what does persons do? Persons speak. So God said, let there be light. There was light. A person thinks. A person's able to, to carry on conversations internally. In fact, in the Godhead, God carries on conversation between three persons. And that'll be another Sunday we'll spend together as we talk about the mystery of the Trinity. There's relationships between persons right within the Holy Trinity. But for now, I want you to focus on let us make men in our image. God is a person who carries out plans, makes decisions. He has self-consciousness, just like you do. In fact, your self-consciousness, we learned the last time together, comes from him. And so God says, let us make men in our image. And he carries out his intentions. And God breathes into our nostril and people live. God also has emotions. He's a personal being that not only can think and not only can speak, but he can also feel. In Genesis chapter 6, it says that the Lord God looks upon the creation that he's made and it grieved him what the people were doing. And the New Testament says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit because every one of the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all have the attributes of personalness. The scripture says that we can hurt God emotionally. That he's grieved with us. He's personal like that. Just like when you're rejected as an individual, just as you hurt when somebody breaks your heart, God is hurt like that. In fact, your hurts are the reflection of what God is like in his personalness. God also has a will. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we're faced with a God who's a spirit. He is a personal spirit. But this personal spirit permeates Every place, every space. In fact, in divine way of existence, there is no vacuum. We might say that there's no black hole with God. There is no place where there's just nothingness. Carl Sagan just wrote a new book, and it's, it kind of outlines everything you ever wanted to know about astronomy and were afraid to ask. And Carl Sagan, though he's not a believer, is a very skillful writer, paints beautiful word pictures, and Time Magazine was reviewing his new book, and he talked about Voyager going out into the universe, and, and, they, and Carl Sagan got him to turn the camera back towards planet Earth, and you see this, just this little, I think it's kind of a greenish little spot way off there in the distance, and Carl Sagan tried to say, well, look at how insignificant we are, and, and you know, we need to get our act together here on planet Earth, because, man, a, a war on planet Earth, and from, from the universe's standpoint, wouldn't mean anything. And there's some truth in that. But you know what struck me about that is the Voyager goes out into outer space. Does it escape God? You see, as the Voyager goes out, you know, one of the things that I wrestle with in modern technology is that I open up the Word of God. And as I open up the Word of God, I'm faced, in fact, I read it in Hebrew, so I open up an ancient text and it even smells old. And then I read about Voyager taking off and all this computer technology. Do any of you ever have trouble getting together this, this ancient idea of God with all this modern computer technology? And sometimes we can think like, you know, 
where, how does this old-time religion fit into all this? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Because a great, the whitest man that ever lived, according to the scripture, from a human standpoint, was King Solomon. And King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 was at the high point of his career. He, he had just accomplished the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And that was something that his dad longed to do. Every son that's able to do what his father was not able to do has a tremendous day of fulfillment and, and kind of a time of great maturing. And Solomon had that day in 1 Kings chapter 8. His father David had collected all the, the materials for the temple. And Solomon was able to get the Phoenician king to work with him. And they built a beautiful dwelling place for God on earth. And God told him to build it. So it was going to be a special place where the, where the Shekinah glory of God would come upon this building in Jerusalem. They get all the nation to come. Thousands, probably millions were there. And Solomon, this great king, it's a stirring sight, puts his hand up in the air, and he prays to the Lord God of heaven. So you can imagine, it'd be kind of like being down in, at the, in front of the, the city hall in Dallas with, say, hundreds of thousands of people gathered together in that big open area in front of city hall and have someone stand up and put their hands up and begin to pray over the loudspeaker system. That's what you've got. But I want you to see how Solomon prays. Let's pick it up in verse 27. But, but will God... Solomon's talking to God, he says, but will God really dwell on the earth? I want you to see Solomon's perspective. You see, everyone's rejoicing. We're going to build this temple, and God's going to dwell in the temple. And Solomon, this wise man, says, hey, wait a minute. Will the ultimate God in the universe dwell upon the earth? Do you think we can? And the idea of this statement is, we've just built this little building. Are we going to contain this infinite God in this little building? And then look what Solomon says. He says, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Let me read those words to you again. Even the heavens, the highest heavens, cannot contain you. You know what Solomon is saying? Solomon is saying that Carl Sagan was standing, notwithstanding. Carl Sagan can send his voyager as far into the universe as he wants to send him. He can send him light years upon light years upon light years upon light years. In fact, you can just go ahead and get a more powerful spaceship and just send it farther. You can get radio telescopes that can penetrate deeper. You know what they're going to find when they get out there? God. And he's already arrived. In fact, he didn't have to arrive. He was always there. Isn't that incredible? He's saying that the highest heavens cannot contain him. If you think he can't handle your problems, think of a being who is everywhere, all the time, present. You know, that's really important. I'm not omnipresent. You know what that means? There's a lot of times when I can't be there for you. In fact, you're going to get mad at me if you think I can always be there for you because I'm not omnipresent. And you know what? I'm also getting older and I don't even have the energy that I used to have, so I just can't be there all the time for you. That means I'm ineffective. I'm powerless at times. Because if I'm not there, then I'm not going to be able to meet your need. And that's why I don't want you to trust me to meet your need. I want you to trust someone who will always be there. Because what it means to be omnipresent is it means that you're on the spot, Johnny on the spot, to meet every need. God is God on the spot. Not Johnny, but God on the spot to meet every need. 
Isn't it an incredible thing? Like if you were an astronaut, you get way out, you know, say that the Lord doesn't come back for another hundred years or so. I think he will, but let's suppose he doesn't. Suppose you're an astronaut, you go blasting off in outer space, and you get way up there, and, the, and somewhere out in some weird corner of the Milky Way, like in Star Wars, and something goes wrong with your spaceship, and you go, oh God, please help us now. And, God, and, and, and you get a blank nothing, because God can't hear you. You just arrive someplace in outer space where God isn't. You say, that's ludicrous. See, all of you believe that God is omnipresent. How many of you, when you pray, you say, Dear God, would you please come over here from Africa so you can hear what I'm saying? Because I just heard a missionary pronouncement, and they told me that you were doing a great work in Africa. Well, I need you to come over here from Africa because I need your help in the United States. How many of you have ever prayed like that? If you have, you're, an, you're, you're a heretic. And none of you really. I'm teasing you a little bit. You don't pray like that. How many of you expect God, the instant you say, Dear God, my daddy in heaven, as Jesus taught me to pray, Abba, Father, here I am, I need your help. How many of you think God is listening? You all do. But you ever stop, stop to think about the wonder of that all? In fact, already today, we've already jammed the earthly computers. There's not a computer on a planet Earth that can handle all of your talking with God. Some of you started talking to God from all different parts of Midlothian, all different parts of Dallas, all different parts of the United States, all over this world, in all different time zones, a million different places, and everyone's talking to God, praying to him. And God heard every single one. You know why? Because he is. He doesn't have to go anywhere to hear you. He doesn't have to travel anywhere to hear you. He's already there. Isn't that great? The highest heavens cannot contain him He's everywhere, filling all things. Ephesians says that Jesus Christ is the one that fills the fullness. And you thought that this ancient religious stuff was, needed to get caught up with technology? Come on. That idea, you could ponder that the rest of the week and it'll blow your mind. God is everywhere, all the time, filling all space. No vacuum with God. He's always there, instantaneously present. Is that comforting? You bet. Turn to Psalm 139. Let's look at one final passage. This is a whole psalm that Solomon's son, his, Solomon's dad, King, Solomon, uh, King David, gave to us. It's just kind of a beautiful exposition. If you ever want a passage to explain to somebody what the omnipresence of God is, his eternal presence, his spiritual, personal presence, everywhere, all the time, it's Psalm 139. Psalm 139 begins with King David saying, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You see, God's omnipresence is a very personal thing. You know what it means? It means that God is always, always with you. And that's a messed up idea that some of you have. Some of you have the idea that you're with God now and you're close to God now. But when you walk out of here, that you'll walk away from God. Some of you are in this weird way of thought that you come and visit God, then you go away from God, you come and visit God. I want you to know that that's crazy. God is always, always there. You, don't, you might not remember it, you might not feel it, you might not think it, it doesn't change the reality. Just like radio waves are all around you today and they are objectively here, if you don't turn on the radio, that's your own fault. They're here, man. God is here for you. And King David is saying that God is here. He searched me. He's inside of me. And he knows me. David says, when I sit down, and that means in Hebrew, when I go to bed at night, guess who's there? I thought of that last night. Last night at 12 o'clock, Josh was still not home. Mary was ready to kill me. 
He went on a birthday party, and he went to a game, and he went in and had pizza. He's 13 years of, old, years of age, and I forgot to find out exactly when he would come home. Mary's lying in bed. She looks across the bed, and she sees 204 and leaves off the one before the two. She was ready to kill me. She said, where is Joshua? It's 204 in the morning. I said, honey, it isn't 204. It's 1204. And he's at a birthday party. I know who he's with. When's he going to come home? I don't know. <laughs> who is he with? I don't know. Exactly. She was ready to kill me. But you know what? I did know who he was with. That's why this truth, this truth is not just theology. It's great, great parenting Security. I didn't know where he was. But I'm able to say, God, you're with him. You're with him. Protect him. Help him not to get messed up on a Saturday night late. Protect him. You think that's not important as a parent? Yes, it is. Very important. Jonathan has been away from me for 10 days in the land of Israel. I, I can't even figure out how to call him. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, he could have been kidnapped by the PLO by now, for all I know. And that's what my parental thinking starts to do. But you know what? God is present with me, and God is present with him. When I lie down, God is with me. When I rise up, when I go out into a day, God is with me. Isn't that a comfort today? Isn't that great? You know what? That'll comfort you, or it'll scare the you-know-what out of you. If you're close to him, it'll comfort you. If you go to take drugs this week or to plaster yourself out in immorality, remember, God's knocking on your heart saying, hey, I'm here, man. You think you're all alone. You're not alone. I'm right here. Can you imagine going out on a date and your father goes on every date you ever go on? You see, as kids, when we grow up, we think that the ultimate great pleasure of, of growing up is to get away from parental influence. I got news from you, for you, you will never, never, never get away from parental influence. Because the ultimate daddy in heaven is God, and you can't get away from him. He goes in the backseat of cars, he goes out on beaches, he goes, he goes into, into lonely houses. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He really is everywhere. And that needs to be a great warning to you. But the reason he's always there is because he cares about you. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm teething a little bit, but I want to be very serious with you. It will keep you from sin if you remember the omnipresence of God. I've never met anybody yet that says, Okay, God, I'm going to sin. Here I go. Watch me. Whee! People don't do that. People always say, they act, they act as if, God, I'll check with you later. I'll see you later. I'm going to mess around a little bit. I'm going to leave away, go away from your presence. We all have an idea that you're in the presence, you're out of the presence of God. Well, you're not in the presence and out of the presence of God. You are in relationship with God and out of relationship with God, but you are never out of his presence, ever. In fact, if he ever talks to you about, like, he's going to leave you, what he's really saying is not that he's not going to be there. He says he's, he's, it's going to be like he's not there because he's not going to reach out there and grab you if you want to do your own way, because he's very much of a gentleman. He's always with you, but he's very gentle, especially now in this age of grace. But don't you ever think that you escape and get somewhere in this universe where God is not. He is everywhere. It says that he knows when we sit down and when we get up. He discerns our going out and our lying down. He is familiar with all of our ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. 
It says, you hem me in behind and before you. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. As a result of hearing what we've heard today, you should be able to, to just have your mind rejoice. David just stopped at this point as he thinks about the omnipresence of God, and he says, this is just too wonderful. I want to just put in a plug for studying the deep truth of the scripture. If you want to have truths that will just expand your mind and expand your heart, there's nothing greater than studying about God and getting to know him. And it will never be out of date, and it will never become old-fashioned. In modern society, we think that theology has become an ancient discipline of the past. It is the ever-present, mind-blowing, wonderful truth. And what we've talked about today is very much up-to-date technologically. Only it's a technology that we won't even begin to understand until we go home to be with the Father in heaven. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. In verse 7, we close with David saying, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You might want to ask that someday. It says, If I go to the highest heavens, we've been talking about that, you were there. That's what Solomon talked about. If I make my bed, in other words, if I get on this space shuttle and I blast in outer space, God's going to be there. If I get in this submarine, this next person says, if, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. David says, if I get in this submarine, to bring it up into our modern culture, if I get in this submarine and go to the lowest parts of the oceans, if I'm in the Nautilus submarine and I pray, God is there. I don't have to reach to the highest heaven. God's in the lowest depths of the sea, right there with me. He fills that space. It says, if I ride in the wings of the dawn, David says, if I get up early in the morning and, and at sunrise, God, you'll be there. If I follow the course of the sun across and, and it's settled on the far side and to an Israelite, the sun sets by the sea in the Mediterranean Sea. It says, if the sun goes down over the Mediterranean Sea, God's there. So from east to west, God is there. He says, if I ride in the wing of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me. Notice how he personalizes it. God is not everywhere, every place for nothing. He's there for himself to be able to, and uses the imagery of his hand to guide me and protect, take care of me. If I say in verse 11, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. You know, some of you are going to go through what we call the dark night of the soul. Some of you might be going through that right now. Because some of you say, well, Dave, I've learned today, you're teaching me that God is always present with me. Sometimes I feel like he's a million miles away. I felt like that at times. I've shared with you in the past how when Jonathan had spinal meningitis, and in that long night in the hospital, I held Jonathan, he was about two years of age, with the intravenous wires going everywhere, and him convulsing with a wicked fever. The doctors and nurses were, you know, another part of the building, just sitting there in the darkness. I felt like God was a million miles away. I felt like he didn't hear my prayers. I felt like all I had was... My precious son is going to die. And it was a dark night of the soul. That's what it's like sometimes. And some of you are going to go through that. The scriptures talk about that. And David's saying that sometimes it's going to be so dark and it just seems like that, that all of the chaos and things that I don't understand have just impinged upon me and struck my heart down. But you know what David said? It says, even in the darkness, it will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, I didn't feel like God was there. And I didn't feel like God's hand and his comfort was protecting me. But it was. It was. Because God's presence is not my emotion. 
God's presence is not what I believe and what I don't believe. I don't conjure up God. God in the darkness can see everything. And it's light to him. And in God's infinite grace, in that point, standpoint, he came and, and chose to give an eruption of, his, of the eternal kingdom, and he brought health to Jonathan. And Jonathan didn't have any ramifications for it. I, maybe the Lord lowered his IQ a little bit so Mary and I would be able to live with him in a normal way. But the Lord graciously provided. In that case, when I thought it was totally dark, the Lord was working a beautiful plan. I can look back on that now, and he brought Dr. Kipp, a, a surgeon that I knew, just at the right moment. He caused the medicine to work and all kinds of things came together. And our family, the Lord in that particular instance, chose to bring healing. There's been other times in our family where the darkness of the, of the night came, the dark night of the soul came, like when David's, David died, Mary's younger brother, when her oldest brother died, there was no miracle in the night. There was no light in the night. It's still dark. It's still night. But David's promise still rings through the age. And it says, even the dark is light to this omnipresent being. It says this, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Can you imagine that? In the darkness, when you are being woven together in the womb of your mother, David's saying, God was superintending that process. The darkness of a womb is light to him. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was, when I was made in this secret place. When I was woven together in the depth of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. If you're having trouble trusting God today, you need to stop and think of how helpless you were in the womb of your mother. And the Bible's saying here that God was intricately weaving. It's a tremendous statement against taking the life of one of these developing little people. It also brings great comfort. This psalm tells us that, that the Lord is superintending. There's a chaos in the natural process. Things are not according to the heart of God. But Psalm 139 is promising us that, that God is still there and that ultimately we're going we're to be in a heavenly kingdom where we're going to see the storyline, where we're going to see how it all fits together. And therefore we can trust him because God wasn't absent. He's not weak. He wasn't impotent. He just, it wasn't that he was too weak to come through. David's saying that he, he controls our unformed substance as it takes shape and becomes you. You know what it says? It says every one of your lives has significance today because God had your days planned. And he has a great, great plan for you. The book of Jeremiah says God's plan for us are not plans for evil. They're plans for good. The omnipresence of God is not just some lofty theological ideal. It means as we go out into a week that the presence of God goes with us which means that we're safe. It means we have a source of comfort. It means that no challenge, no crisis, no opportunity that we might face, we have to face alone. We are never, never alone. Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. The second person of the Trinity could promise he would be with you always because he is God the omnipresent spirit who's a personal spirit that's there for you. What a great truth. The fact that we can never play hide and seek with someone who always is where we're going to be and is always with us. So as you go into this week, I pray that you'll stop all your internal games of hide and seek and I pray that you'll remember that rather than being afraid of him, 
that you need to just cling to him because he's the one that's always present. The eternal spirit, personal God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who's always there. And he's there to meet your need and to shape you into a beautiful personality just like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that with David, as he closes Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in us. I'd ask you, Lord, that as the scripture talks about your omnipresence, the fact that you occupy all, of uni- all the universe, all of the infinite space that we could ever imagine, you fill it all. That you are immediately present to every one of us. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would recognize that the scripture drives that immense truth right into the personalness of our own hearts. And it says, don't pretend with God. Don't try to fake him out. Live a life of total integrity. As we go out into this week, I pray that we would rejoice in your presence. That we would not have a deceitful, false idea that we can walk away into secular society, away from your influence, away from your guidance, away from your presence. We've learned today that you are there. I'd ask you, Lord, that this would comfort us. But I also pray that it would be a warning to us to keep away from sin and things that would displease you. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would practice your presence this week. We pray, Lord, that we would realize that it's not something we conjure up, that learning to practice your presence isn't isn't a figment of our imagination. Help us to allow your spirit to teach us that it is learning to live in what is objectively true. God is here inside of us inside of every one of us as individuals. He's also inside the incredible universe, not equal to it, distinct from it. It is his creation, and yet he is present. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would use today's study from your word of God to just nullify some very false modern ideas about the it, the force, the transcendent universal world soul. Lord, those are false idols. And I pray that we would bow before the biblical God, who is God the Spirit, the personal Spirit, who is omnipresent, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to build our lives upon these foundational truths, realizing that as we get to know you, we enter into the truths that will give us life for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.